guy in the kitchen. Hmm. All right, then. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Kill the Messenger podcast for episode five. My name is Dave Prodan, and this is a surfing podcast. The North American summer has come to a close, and the surfing world now sets its collective sights on the fall of Europe. We have a great guest today in Peter Mel. Peter is a lot of things to a lot of people, and he and I spent some time during the Hurley Pro at Trestles to talk about surfing communities and the specifics around his hometown of Santa Cruz. We also have a great write-in guest for today's top five, who will be revealed later. As always, we encourage everyone to write in on whatever platform you find this on, or you can find me on Instagram at Dave Prodan. Let's get to the news. In the news these last two weeks, Jordy Smith and Tyler Wright won the Hurley and Swatch Pro at Trestles. For Jordy Smith, this was the first time in a while that showcased the world-class form and competitive tact that made him a title contender ahead of multiple injury-laden seasons. Damien Farenfort, friend of the pod, mentioned that he was in a good space during our last episode, and he's proven that now, moving to number four on the rankings. Tyler Wright is now mathematically within striking distance of her maiden WSL title. The next stop is Portugal, and given everything she's endured since she first blitzed the CT field with a win at the Beachley Classic in 2008, a title clinching in Europe is sure to be emotional. Standing in her way, of course, are the WSL Top 17. And in sad news, the world learned that David Wood, Woody, passed away ahead of the Trestles event. Woody served as the sport's head of security for over 20 years and impacted an unthinkable amount of people. He watched over us. I loved working with him. He was my friend, and I miss him. Now, I debated whether or not to run this fish-out-of-water segment in today's episode. I was feeling like it was either not appropriate or all too appropriate. Initially, it was going to be set up as something I thought about while reading James Andrew Miller's book, Powerhouse, about the Creative Artist Agency, and a quick commentary on games and life and different approaches. That said, the following is obviously applicable to much loftier thinking than that. This is the late Bill Hicks capping his Revelation show in 1992. There is a point. Is there a point to all this? Let's find a point. Is there a point to my act? I would say there is. I have to. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. And the ride goes up and down and round and round. It has thrills and chills, and it's very brightly colored, and it's very loud, and it's fun for a while. Some people have been on the ride for a long time, and they begin to question, is this real, or is this just a ride? And other people have remembered, and they come back to us, and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride, and we Kill those people. (laughs) Shut him up. We have a lot invested in this ride. Shut him up. Look at my furrows of worry. Look at my big bank account and my family. This has to be real. It's just a ride. But we always kill those good guys who try and tell us that. You ever notice that? And let the demons run amok. But it doesn't matter because it's just a ride. And we can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. A choice right now between fear and love. The eyes of fear want you to put bigger locks on your door, buy guns, 
close yourself off. The eyes of love. Instead, see all of us as one. Here's what we can do to change the world right now to a better ride. Take all that money we spend on weapons and defense each year and instead spend it feeding, clothing, and educating the poor of the world, which it would many times over, not one human being excluded, and we can explore space together, both inner and outer, forever. It's just a ride. Let's get to the juice. Right. Joining me on the juice today is a man of many hats. He is a Santa Cruz legend, a former QS campaigner, a big wave icon, a WSL commissioner, and a celebrated member of the broadcast team, Peter Mel. Welcome to Kill the Messenger. Wow. Such an honor. It really is, Dave. Uh, the honor is all ours. Um, so let's get started. We could spend forever discussing the nuances of big wave surfing and the impact that you personally have made on that part of the sport. And I'm sure that'll come up today, but what I really want to talk to you about is the Santa Cruz community as a breeding ground of world-class surfers and why it seems like they aren't as represented as they can be on the international stage. Good question. Yeah, I think there's a lot to it, but I'm uh, welcome to discuss it. Cool. Well, well, maybe let's start with some potentially lesser-known facts about yourself. I think you know the entire world is aware of your status as a big wave icon, um, but you're also an incredibly accomplished surfer in conditions of all types. Uh, where did you grow up and what was that community like where you started surfing? So I was born in Santa Cruz. Um, actually, I was conceived in Hawaii. Uh, my father and mother moved to the North Shore for, uh, you know, in the summer of 68. My dad was shaping boards at that time. He thought that was the spot to be in order to, to make surfboards, which it was at that time. But I think at the same time, there was a lot of other shapers there. So the competition was rough as far as uh, producing surfboards. He was making them out of his own home there in Mokalea. They decided to get pregnant, which happened in that uh, summer. And then we ended up moving uh, to Santa Cruz right after that because mom selling Avon on the North Shore wasn't doing red hot. My dad, surfboards were, again, tough to sell. So they decided that Santa Cruz was a hotbed at that time. They had done a, you know, after their honeymoon, they had done a trip up through all of California, decided that Santa Cruz was an amazing place and decided to drop shop there. Uh, literally our home was on 41st Avenue, which is one of the hotbeds right now of, of, you know, surf industry. O'Neill had their wetsuit manufacturing and their shops on 41st Avenue. There was a couple other stores that happened to open at that same time. And, uh, at that point, we planted and uh, the, the shop has moved from the middle of 41st now down the street to where it sits now, right there on the corner of Portola and 41st. And uh, they've got major industry surf shops there with Rip Curl and Billabong and O'Neill and, and our store. So very much born into a surfing family. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, I was born into a surfboard factory, literally. I mean, I was born in a hospital, but I came home into the foam dust, into the resin smell. I've been there my entire life. Uh, we have a factory that's still producing surfboards to this day. We still have a retail store. It's one store. It has not ever grown anywhere beyond that. I still have a very active role at the store. It's another hat I wear. You know, I've been doing retail my entire life. Let's talk about Santa Cruz as a surfing community then and now. Um, obviously, once your family moved from Hawaii to the community, established themselves, your father would have been an integral part of that world. What was it like for you 
growing up? Who were the people that you looked up to and, and who were your contemporaries? Well, at that point in time, um, that was the early 70s, there was a, a pretty good segregation in the middle of town. It was the east side and the west side. And I grew up, our store was on the east side, was where O'Neill was, again, and, and Pleasure Point, which, I mean, if you look at the actual town in general, you've got the east side and the west side. It's separated because we're at the top of a bay. So the east side being Pleasure Point area, Capitola, that whole region has great waves. And then there's the west side, which holds on to Steamer Lane, uh, Stockton Avenue, the west side of town. And so there was a segregation of surfers. The west siders only surfed the west side. The east siders only surfed the east side. And then if they ever crossed paths, it was always some sort of like, you know, literally at that point in time, there was, uh, you didn't share those waves. It was a very uh, radical time in Santa Cruz and that there was, you know, this protective aura about it. And it's, you know, it's grown and we can get into that later. But I mean, that's where it kind of started. There was this really protective of the surf spots. You didn't, you didn't share your waves. You didn't share necessarily. And the only sharing you were doing was with your close friends. Being a surfer in Santa Cruz at that time in the 1970s, what were the motivations for most of the community then? I mean, was it just the pure enjoyment of the activity? Was it a rebellion from societal norms or, or was there even a competitive avenue for people to pursue? There was actually, I mean, if you start looking in the seventies, competitive surfing was starting. There was a couple of events that ha- there that, that happened at steamer lane. Um, there were very limited events, but there was actually a crew that, um, started at that time that were, you know, teenagers that were the best servers in town. It was Vince Collier, Richard Schmidt, Kevin Reed, uh, Steve Colton, all who actually made, avenues out into the international realm at that point in time i mean steve colton was an example of somebody that went into the u.s world championships and actually made a statement there was vince collier who showed up the same year this is 83 but the same year that simon anderson introduced the thruster vince collier went there to that bell's beach event and you know ended up making the main event and was one of the best surfers at that event in that time you know and it's kind of an unsaid thing but i mean those stories came back to our town you know richard schmidt obviously made inroads in on the north shore and so we started to see those guys which were our mentors our, that i looked up to they were able to go around the world and 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 become icons that were respected throughout the entire region who were some of the guys that you started surfing with who was the crew you're running with early on and, and what were your spots and, and how did you matriculate through the different places in santa cruz well i i our surf shop being in you know on the east side of town capitola was one of the great places that uh, were beginners went to my mom was a full beach mama right she would go down there and hang out she had good friends that lived right in capitola so i'd go there and hang out on the beach with her you know my first memories were with my dad he actually took me out at, at sewer peak which is at the very top of pleasure point uh he put, pushed me into waves i got caught in kelp had a, a you know a really scary uh experience and you know at that point in time i i basically vowed that i'd never surf with um, with him again, <laughs> I'd actually vowed that I wasn't going to surf at all. And I was around six or seven years old. So it took me a few more years after that to get, get kind of back into the lineup and, and do it on my own. Capitola was that spot. The guy who was ripping down there was Tony Roberts. He was, uh, the guy that spent all the time there. He surfed with this amazing little blue twin fin with a lightning bolt on it, had the best equipment and ripped. And I looked up to him right there at the very beginning stages, those first few summers. So he was a major influence on me. And then all the surfers on Pleasure Point, when it went to Mark Machado, Steve Price, Dan Roman, Marcel Soros, those were the guys on the east side that I was looking up to who were starting to make, you know, the time they were getting photos in the magazines, they were surfing events and doing well. And as you recall, and gosh, I want to say 
the first PSAA, which was the first real pro surfing event where Anthony Rufo and Steve Price made the final. That was, uh, you know, it was a lighthouse classic, I think it was called. And I, I really can't recall the year, but I would say it was in the late eighties. And, um, that was when we saw professional surfing for the first time. That's when I saw professional surfing. We had the WSA, which was the Western Surfing Association. And we all, um, you know, were able to compete in district two. Doc Scott ran that entire program and it was so much fun. I mean, and, and I look back at my dad who was able to compete in the WSA and my uncle. And they all used to do that. So I looked up to them as my mentors, and, and Doc Scott was that guy that kind of brought competitive surfing into my life. Sure. So so you're coming from that family tradition. Did your dad have any sort of specific goals for you as a surfer? Was it to become a professional, or what, what was what was his take on it? Not at all. He wanted, he, His pressure on me at that point in time was all about school. I needed to have a 3.0 grade point average. He at no point said said anything to me in regards to wanting me to become a professional surfer. I mean, he instilled a work ethic in me. He wanted me to sweep the floors at the shop. You know, I didn't get to walk in and, and start running the store from the very beginning. I needed to work myself up the ladder. So I rinsed wetsuits. I did all of those things that you do as a shop drum. And, I, you know, in the factory time, I, I spent a lot of time whittling away on foam and learning how to use resin and, you know, using acetone as soap and water. Like that's what, you know, acetone is one of those things that we just we could clean anything off. And I thought that was the most amazing stuff ever. But, um, you know, so I learned a lot in those early years, but not necessarily him teaching me to surf. I think that our first experience kind of shaped that where I was just doing, if I was, I was learning to surf, I was doing it on my own and, and looking up to the people that surfed well in my town. So you make a personal commitment that you're going to teach yourself how to surf. Uh, you have mentors in and around your beach that you look up to. You start to progress when did it change for you and become sort of a professional pursuit? When did sponsorship come into play? I mean, I look back and, and, and really those years were, were sponsored by my dad. I mean, I had free product and that was what it was. I wasn't getting really uh, a major paycheck. You know, it started probably my late teens where I first got my first you know sponsor that was paying besides my dad. You know, but my dad supported me everywhere. He drove me to every event. He paid for everything. Uh, that was, you know, our hotel rooms and, and all of our friends, too. I mean, we had our own little shop team that we would go together and we'd do these trips together and go to Baja. And, um, so he was my major support group back in the day. It, it, it really, in those early years, um, you know, I was getting paid peanuts. You know, it wasn't enough to get me on the tour. It was supported by my by my parents. And they were, you know, they, they loved what I was doing. They saw that I had limited success and they wanted to support that. So they allowed me to do it. Compared to, you may not know, but compared to other surfers in town at the time, do you feel like you're getting less or more support from the industry? In the teenage years, I was getting less. And it's because I didn't require very much. Mm -hmm. It was more that I was there, you know, I, I was able to get um, to the events I needed, you know, I chose to be at, um, you know, a few trips here and there. But overall, it was about, um, you know, doing what I, what I had because school was so important. You know, until I was going to graduate high school, I wasn't going to be able to, you know, get away from town because my parents wanted me to finish school. Right, and and you may not know this either, but at the time, was it was it clear to you that surfers in Santa Cruz received less industry support than surfers, say, in San Clemente, Orange County, Huntington Beach? I I didn't actually understand that at that time, and I thought I was probably in the same comparison. But um, what really changed for us as 
a group of surfers was that um, Tony Roberts kind of came into the world and he was a filmmaker at that time and he was doing these super eight films and he kind of brought us as a group together to go do shoots, you know, and I don't, as you recall, but I think that, you know, at that time there wasn't this, like, it was right when VHS came out and we were making surf videos and, and TR was at the forefront of that. And he really helped us to kind of give ourselves a name. And that's really when our professional career started is because all of a sudden there's these VHS tapes that people were watching and we became famous, you know, for at that time, what famous was through all those videos, you know, and he would make us characters, you know, he was filming us and taping us and, you know, he, he, do everything not just our lifestyles so it was it was cool to be part of that and i think that's where we kind of came in as a group and that was where we tried to outdo each other and there was a, a whole gamut of surfers that were part of that mm-hmm. from adam replogo chris gallagher to marcel soros dan roman all those guys on the west side there was flea and there was barney and there was loya and and Bolkois. and so there was a, a lot of us that surf pretty good and and we'd always meet up and we'd go for shoots and we tried out to each other and whether it was doing aerials or surfing big waves or barrels we were always trying out to each other you touched on it before the the competition and, and the rivalry between the west side and east side in santa cruz um can you give us a little more background on that and specifically in that the start of that video era i mean was there bad blood at all in that group or were you guys sort of health healthy competition I pushing at each that other point in time it became it became just a fun thing you know um there was back in the day some violence that came through between you know if a west sider were to come over to the east side and, and caught too many waves they would let them know and there would be you know some yelling and head slaps but nothing like over over the top not mm-hmm. gang related or anything like that but it yeah. was you know it was something that was protective of your turf and we kind of kept that alive but we kept it in alive more as a way to push each other because um, there was actually this great event that we used to have um, it was at pleasure point and it was put on it was called the O'Neill yet ya- um, no chord classic yeah now no chord classic and it would actually pit east side against west side. Um, so the west side would come over and there would be this like little trophy that would be given to whoever, you know, finished the highest. So it was this became this kind of rivalry that was really about per- pushing performance rather than really about protection of the turf. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, and so from the success of the videos, you start receiving a lot more attention from the industry. For you personally, does that mean you're taking a crack at the QS internationally or are you still remaining domestic? No, we were, we were, I mean, it, it, there was the, I mean, there was a time frame when we had the U.S. Pro Tour, right? Which was the PSAA. So a lot of it, we could have success surfing domestically. Um, but you always had that dream of uh, a world title. I mean, anytime you're a professional surfer, that was something that I always, always dreamed for. And then that was kind of when we started to see qualifying series come in. There was the PSAA and then the qualifying series. And then there was this international events. And I always wanted to do that. And one of the passions I had a lot of was always participating in the Triple Crown. You know, Hawaii was a place that when I went there at a very early age, my first experience there was when I was 12 years old. I went there for the U.S. Championships. That was uh, an event that um, Sonny Garcia won at Makaha. John Chamoka finished second. I finished third. David Eggers fourth. And like that was like the first time that I had gotten away from my hometown, was able to compete in an event that was an international event for the most part. It was American, U.S., but it felt international when you put Hawaii in the mix and uh, had success. You know, I finished in the top three. So it was like, whoa. I could be a professional surfer at 12 years old. And at that same time, that was my first experience on the North Shore. So um, I think I turned 13 that same season. I rode uh, a 7-6 at Sunset Beach. And that's when my passion for big waves started because I actually rode Sunset Beach. It must have been probably 6 feet. Felt like it was 20 feet. But I remember kicking out of a wave I got at, 
at the chan in the channel at sunset, which was you know at that point in time was a gigantic wave. We had pretty good waves in Santa Cruz, but nothing like that. And I, I kicked out on this 7.6 that I mar borrowed from Mark Gowen. I was on the same trip with guys like Will Church and Mark Machado, who were mentors. And they took me under their wing. I was away from my parents. And this experience was like no other I'd ever experienced. Um, kicking out of that wave, that whole trip on the North Shore, seeing what I saw on the North Shore at that time, I was hooked. I wanted to travel. I wanted to be a pro surfer. And that's kind of where I kept my, you know, kept my, you know, focus going um, from that point forward. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that you note that your competitive success at the time was based on having a very very strong domestic tour to perform on, and also interesting that you know that your family instilling a love of big waves for you at such a young age led to such great things for you in that space. I, I do want to track back to the generational group of peers you had and that healthy competition that you described before. Because if I remember right, like it wasn't a singular dimension within surfing that you guys were pushing in. You know, it was it was big wave surfing at Mavericks and bail riding with, with trips to Puerto Escondido and, and aerial pioneering at Steamer Lane or, or turns at Pleasure Point. At the time, was that group aware of how multidimensional its approach to surfing was? A or lot of it had to do with the product of our environment. I mean, literally, we have these great wedge peaks, you know, these different wa waves. The lane was good for airs. And we had these guys that we looked up to that were doing it, too. I mean, on the east side, there was Steve Price, who was doing amazing big aerials. Uh, you had Kevin Reed on Midtown West Side. Uh, you had Chris Green. You had these guys who were doing this really forward-thinking type of surfing. And it was a very similar time that was happening down in Santa Monica, down in, at Dogtown. Those guys were bringing this skate influence. That was when that was happening in Santa Cruz. I mean, if you remember, Novak started Santa Cruz skateboards all in the same era. And so we were doing the same things, just doing it up north and probably not as, as you know, in the limelight like it was down happening down in, in L.A. But we were doing the same things. And so skateboarding influence, those aerials were happening at the same time. Jay Adams was trying to do it, you know, maybe even earlier on our side. But that's what we were looking up to. So we just brought that same kind of thinking and mentality. But again, product of the environment because... We did have big steamer lane to charge big waves. We had we could go up the coast and go surf these radical waves that people didn't really necessarily ride, and um, so it was it it gave us that opportunity to be able to ride all these different types of waves and push each other. You're someone who yourself is a world class surfer. You've been on the QS before. You've worked at Quicksilver. You'd work with both surfers on the QS and on the CT. You're a WSL broadcaster, so you see world class surfing all the time wave quality that you touched on as a, a training forum for surfers in Santa Cruz, would you say that there's higher quality waves more consistently in Santa Cruz than there would be maybe in Orange County? For sure. I mean, because the wintertime, you know, Orange County is not that great during the winter. Mm -hmm. um, there's places to surf, but I mean, ultimately, the, the, the wintertime up north is, you know, we, we opens up a lot more doors. And even during the summer, I mean, you'll see lowers is four feet you'll go 350 miles up the coast and it's going to be the same size, sometimes even bigger from those Southern Hemi swells because of where it sits on the coast. It, mm -hmm. it swallows South Swell. So yes, I mean, we have way better waves. <laughs> I don't want to broadcast that to the world, but it's true. Well, there are lots of barriers to entry up there as well. But I guess what we're trying to understand is that while it might not be as much industry support as you'd like, it, it seems that there is enough to do what you need to do. And the quality of the waves is very, very high, and it's very, very consistent. 
are there factors contributing to the fact that Santa Cruz, generation after generation, is producing world-class surfers that are failing to reach the international stage? Yeah, I think um, it's it's very similar to, say, um, Hawaii and, and surfers that live in Hawaii. I think that, you know, at least in Hawaii, there's a lot more opportunity to be um, seen. And I think that it's a lot more important to the industry being that it's a tropical region, you've got these board shorts and, you know, you, it's flavor and there's always, everyone's there every year. And so there's a, a big spotlight on the place. Whereas Santa Cruz, we're actually probably trying to be a little anti-spotlight, mm. but it's a region in which you can easily stay content just staying there and not having to go anywhere else. So I think a lot of the surfers end up being very comfortable staying there and not necessarily wanting to push themselves on the international stage because they're happy getting as many waves as they want in their hometown. And it's a beautiful part of the world, too. Absolutely. You're a very sort of big guy for professional surfer standards. Do you think that the environment up there is more conducive to training CT talent than it is QS talent? And was that ever a struggle for you on your campaign? I would absolutely believe that. And a a lot of it's got to do with the quality of the waves. I mean, looking back in history, like the successes that came from surfers in our region it would be like places like going to hawaii i mean my some of my best events that i ever did good in was haleiwa you know and that was because it was a solid big point break right that was like kind of wild and scary and i went there and loved it you know sunset beach was another place like richie schmidt had success there winning at sunset beach and waimea winning it you know not winning at waimea but doing really well at waimea for the, the eddie Cow. so you know again the the year that richard schmidt and and Vince Collier did well at Bells. It was 15 feet, and they showed up on twin fins and ripped the place, and that's because they were comfortable. And so I think that, yes, you're right. Is it now on the Dream Tour, you get a guy like Nat Young, who was probably not someone that they was touted as making it on the QS, got a break, got onto the CT, and was instantly successful because he could surf good waves so well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a whole generation, at least when I was starting 11 years ago now at ASP, when we'd come up to Santa Cruz and just be blown away by the caliber of talent up there um, you know josh loya josh mulcoy homer henard Rapoy, noi kalukakui like like guys that if you're going to other events in north america or even around the world you're looking at the way they approach the contest at santa cruz and you're like they're surfing with a certain speed and a certain power that would translate really really well to the ct yeah it's uh, it's true i mean and that's again i think the product of the environment and also you know what motivation do you get from a, a guy who's been growing up on perfect waves like that, going out onto the qualifying series and serving beach breaks in the middle of uh, France or Portugal, and, and it just you know you're, you get lost because you're a, not going to have that same kind of uh, ability to uh, motivation. It, it's almost similar to the phenomenon with the outer island surfers in Hawaii. You know, Maui is a good example. Like, there's such hyper good world class talent there, and it just seems that the motivation to leave home and travel around the world is not that high. So, you know, every year we get, you know, whether it's Matt Miola or Kai Barger, Albie Lair, Clay Marzo, we get inundated with these edits of world-class surfing, but these guys just don't have the drive nor desire to to get through the QS for a year to get on the CT. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If they're going to be content and surfing good waves and being warm and, and, and getting sponsorship dollars to do it, you know, um, I know that there's a, a dream to be a world champion, but I'll tell you right now, looking at it, it's hard. Mm. You know, there's really good surfers all over the world, and it's hard, especially if you're living in a region which is wave rich, <laughs> to be able to get that motivation to go out there and grind it out. Mm. Whereas an example, 
of somebody right now bringing us back to this day, Leo Fioravanti. The guy's from Italy. He was surfing boat waves. You don't think that creates a motivation to get out of where he's at to go surf the French beach breaks? And that's a prime example of somebody who is his product of his environment to get himself out of that environment to get better waves. And that's what his drive is, whereas it's a complete opposite from somebody from Hawaii or, or Santa Cruz. If Leo were from Santa Cruz, would he fit in better on the west side or the east side? That's a good question. I think he's a, he's got enough uh, character and and a, a little flair of arrogance to fit right in on the west. <laughs> <laughs> what would his nickname be? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, what's an Italian bird yeah, or no, rodent? That Italian. seems like you guys yeah, are working. He's still going to wave that Italian flag, and if he were to move to Santa Cruz, he'd be the Italian. Style. All right, all right. I, I I read a rumor that you didn't like your nickname, the Condor. Ah, you know, it was, it was, it's funny because that nickname really actually was picked up by the media and wasn't necessarily something that was done. In I my hate the media. It wasn't a product out of my hometown being called that. I actually had some much worse nicknames, <laughs> <laughs> but that one actually was given to me by Chris Gallagher during the PSAA in Costa Rica. We were sitting in, or sorry, Puerto Rico. It was a Puerto Rico event. It was at Hobos and he, we were all staying together because we traveled everywhere together. We all traveled in a posse, and he just somehow came up with the California Condor, you know, from my fingers and what whatnot. But he ended up telling Rockin' Fig, you know, Rockin' Fig was the commentator for the PSAA at the time, and then he ran with it. He used to call me the mailman, but then I became the California Condor. And uh, that's where the media kind of ran with it, and there was some success there at that time. You know, I was able to win an event, you know, at Steamer Lane, and uh, the California Condor ended up being stuck. It's a good headline. Yeah. <laughs> I think when Nat qualified, this is two or three years ago, the story was that he was the first surfer from Santa Cruz since Adam Replogle had qualified for the CT. And I think it was... Chris a, Gallagher was on the same time. And, and Galley. And, and Galley was the one who really actually stayed, put on, put himself on tour, stayed for a couple of years, yeah. had success making it into the finals. I mean, you remember G-Land, he made the final with Jeff Booth. So Galley really was the kind sure. of first in my eyes. Yeah. So, but I mean, even even so, with with Galley as well as Adam, it was what, like a ten year gap. Yeah. Were Were there any other distractions in town, either sort of inherent from the time that you started in the seventies, or even maybe sort of new distractions? Whether it's I don't know, maybe sort of an anti competition vibe, or I mean, there's the big wave passion. I mean, there's the, the drug avenue. Was were any of those contributing factors? Do you think in this recent ten year gap? Uh for sure. I think that um, a lot of it would be, you know, the, even if you look at the history of Santa Cruz as a tourist destination, people came there to party. Mm. I mean, that's where it would come. Everyone from over at Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, would come to Santa Cruz. It had great weather. You'd go there, those killer bars. They had this huge boardwalk on the beach that just instilled a good time having fun there. And a lot of times that became was drugging and drinking and partying. And, and so the town itself, and you lived in the town, it, it you were constantly bombarded with Hey, let's go to the next party. And, you know, and as a group, we all did that. We all partied and had a good time. And there were some great times that happened, but also people with some addictive behaviors kind of fell down that avenue. And you look back at our history. I mean, my generation had a lot of that problems, you know, and there's still a ton of that problems. I think it happens in every town, but again, you know, there's a lot of the spotlight and the media has brought attention to it. And I think Nat was a prime example of somebody who was able to take that, um, out attention and, and kind of burst free of it. And, you know, not go down that road. And, you know, it's uh, it's been an inspiration to our town to see how he's done all that hard work and clean living to get him to where he's at now. So it's like this kind of a little bit of a, a generational change. Do you think that you and your contemporaries looked at someone like Nat 
in a similar way that maybe Kevin Reed and Vince Coley or Richard Smith looked at you? And I guess, I mean, did you guys try to impart any wisdom to Nat or did the town of Santa Cruz and the surf community there sort of consciously support him when he was a very, very young surf star? Oh, for sure. I mean, if you look at our generation now, you know, every every heat that he's surfing and, you know, you're watching on the World Surf League and all of our friends, all of my peers support Nat in a big way, you know, um, you know, whether it be on their social feeds to, to promote him. And yeah, we celebrate him in a big way. And I think that that's because you look at the generation that I'm in now, my group has really kind of turned the corner. Um, you know, I, I had my problems with addiction. There's other friends who had the same problems that are now uh, living a really good, clean life and helping and supporting. You know, you look at a guy like Rufo with all of his press, and um, he's really turned a corner. Now he's working with the Maliola Foundation. He's on a tours with them, and he's giving back to the sport. And he's, you know, made movies to try and help people. He talks to schools. Flea talks to schools. All those guys doing things to really help the next generation underneath that to understand that the pathway that we took necessarily wasn't the best. Um, and you know, and Nat's path is probably a little bit more substantial and, and, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a neat thing to see our town and now in a different way. Do you think that Nat qualifying for the championship tour and having success at that level has inspired the next generation of Santa Cruz surfers to maybe do the same, maybe not qualify for the same level of surfing, but travel outside of town, travel outside of state, travel outside the country and broaden their horizons and their perspectives in a way that's maybe a departure from generations in the past. Yeah, and, and I think that a lot of it's because you look at what he had to do. Um, you know, when he was surfing surfing America and the NSSA, he was able to get out of town and have success. He won here at Trestles, uh, you know, and won an open men's, which hadn't been done by a Santa Cruz guy ever. So it was like, that was that was showing that you know you got to get outside of Santa Cruz and, and put yourself out there and and have success and beat guys outside of you know the Connor Coffins and the Colohandinos like at that time those were the guys that you had to be better than and you you see the generation that is coming up an example being my son John and all of his peers and then there's a younger group even underneath that that have been making their point of getting down to Southern California and spending time not just going in surfing your heats and going back home you know going down there and spending a week and hanging out with all the other surfers down there seeing the magazines seeing the industry because that's where you're going to find success you know and longevity in your career i really like that segue let's close out with a note on the future for the santa cruz surf community you have a son john mel he's 16 he's named after your father he's developing into a nationally recognized surfer potentially internationally recognized surfer how do you feel as a father and as a community member about John and this next generation of Santa Cruz surfers about their prospects for the international stage? Well, I mean, he's coming from a town that I think he's very comfortable in as well. And so sometimes it feels like he gets that kind of set in his ways where he wants to be, uh, you know, just surfing in Santa Cruz. But I also know that I've instilled this travel bug in him that because he's been able to be in tow with me. And I think that that's something that he really enjoys. I think he loves being able to go and spend a week, two weeks. You know, he just spent two weeks in the East Coast on his own chasing hurricanes, and he loved it. So that travel portion is an education that I've received as a youngster that my parents helped me to do. But that's the education that I'd love him to keep having. And um, I, I would say for everyone in his generation, and, and you know, there's some importance in schooling and keeping that schooling, but also times that you can get away and go – see the world do it and i think that that's a well-rounded way to grow up 
it'll help you to see the world in a different light than just being stuck in your home little hometown and your little bubble and thinking that that's all all that's there because you get out and you see the world you can make uh, good choices you'll see the successes of people throughout the globe and all these different communities and um you know i i I would say that that for me is a where it's at. Well, it's the benefit of having enhanced perspectives. It's something that you benefited from throughout your life. Totally agree. Well, Peter Mel, the Santa Cruz community is very fortunate to have a son like you with your insight and your sensitivity and just your raw talent. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, it really came from my, if I look at my parents, I mean, my dad's being honored for one of the first times ever for his shaping and his contribution to the community of Santa Cruz with their doing the boardroom up there next month. And it's pretty cool to see my dad get honored as a shaper. And Shout out to Scott Bass. Exactly. Scott Bass, thank you for uh, allowing that. I mean, he said, I talked to him last night and he was saying, hey, um, it wasn't me. It was, you know, I, I went to the community and the community basically voted him as he's on that short list. And all of a sudden they gave him that honor. And I, I, it's just cool that, that he's worked so hard, you know, shaping pieces of art for 50 years. And now he's getting honored. And uh, it's just you know, and it's more for the community of Santa Cruz. And I've, I've fallen more and more in love with our community, uh, as it's grown. And, uh, the surfing's still just as good there. The waves are just as good. And, um, it's in a good place right now. So rich, rich history in Santa Cruz. And, uh, whether we see them grace us on the international stage or not, they'll still be we producing world-class surfers. And not that you need validation from me, but in my humble opinion, the Mel's absolutely qualify as surfing royalty. Peter Mel, thank you very, very much for coming on Kill the Messenger. Thank you very much for having me. Can I have it then? No, no, you can't. Why not? Well, it's sentimental, tacky crap. That's why not. Do we look like the kind of store that sells I just called to say I love you? Go to the mall. Go to the mall. I love that. This week's Top 5, our segment in honor of the immortal High Fidelity, takes a look at the top five favorite work time songs for current WSL women's number one, Tyler Wright. Now, Tyler's preheat dance routines have become the stuff of legend on tour, and she was kind enough to write in and share what's happening in her headphones. And Tyler's current top five favorite work songs are, at number five, Tilted by Christine and the Queens. Number four, The Ocean by Mike Perry. Number three, Alarm by Anne-Marie. Number two, Heathens by 21 Pilots. And number one, Say It by Flume. Now, I am positive those are unique and inspired choices, and they certainly show my age. Um, it's clear that my ability to stay on the pulse of quality music died out during the great Napster Wars of the early oddies. But for those interested, my current top five jams for writing emails in the dark to are at number five, Mastermind by Deltron3030. I like hip-hop and science fiction, so Deltron is my guy. At number four, Pharaohs by Subtrack. I found this song a few years ago trying to mix a video clip for Joel Parkinson and have been listening to it ever since. At number three, Caravan, the live version by Van Morrison. Van Morrison rules. At number two, Light of the Seven from the Game of Thrones Season 6 soundtrack. You do not want to get an email from me when this is on. And at number one, Obvious Child by Paul Simon, Drum Beats and Heartbeats. Very nice, Rob. A sly declaration of new classic status slipped into a list of old safe ones. Very pussy. Couldn't you be any more obvious than that, Rob? How about, uh, I don't know, The Beatles? How about fucking, fucking Beethoven? Track one, side one of the Fifth Symphony. How can someone who has no interest in music own a record store? 
Now, I've been told that you can now listen to these lists on the WSL Spotify list or site or app or whatever. I'm not sure what it is because, well, Napster. Anyway, let's check the horizon. On the horizon, we have fall in Europe. The QS is currently in Morocco, of all places, but then picks up speed with the QS 10,000 Cash Guys Billabong Pro. This event overlaps with the next stop on the 2016 WSL Women's Championship Tour, the Cash Guys Women's Pro, and we'll see if Tyler Wright can further consolidate her lead through the European leg. Following that will be the Quicksilver and Roxy Pro France from October 4th through 17th. Europe has been on fire the past couple of days, so let's hope autumn is good to all of us over there. As always, all events are webcast live on WorldSurfLeague.com and the WSL app. Well, that's it, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. We continue to change a few things, so please feel free to contact us on these platforms, or you can find me at Dave Prodan. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, and rest in peace, Mr. Wood. <laughs>